Good morning. It is September 2nd, 2021. I want to talk about uh, just generally uh, poetry and my intentions for conspiracy to commit poetry, which is uh, the uh, ongoing newsletter and podcast that uh, you are listening to. I am in Gaziantep, Turkey. It's a beautiful morning. The sky is blue, not a cloud. Maybe you could hear the traffic along the tram highway outside of my kitchen window. Why write poetry? It's a seemingly superfluous activity to write poetry. Um, if you're like me, you go to school, you learn to read, and when you're young you find uh, verses that grab you like Emily Dickinson's Because I Could Not Stop For Death, He Kindly Stopped For Me, The Carriage Held To Just Ourselves and Immortality. Uh, you know, and lines like that stick with you. You're all through your adolescence, puberty comes on, uh, your body changes, uh, it's like your legs uh, ooze into the earth and uh, uh, your, your soul leaps into the sky and, uh, you know, you're romantic and in love with everything, uh, you know everything that you see and touch and taste and smell and the, the entire sensory world is uh, overwhelming. And you read more poetry and uh, you write poetry. You begin to write poetry. At least that's what I just described is uh, what happened to me. I hit adolescence and, and uh, I'd had some exposure to... Uh, you know, the, the American and British poems they teach you in school, uh, even in the 1980s, when I was a boy, they would expose us to some poetry. And, and so, yeah, I, I started keeping uh, notebooks. Then you go to high school, and your high school English teacher is so happy that uh, you like poetry or something like that, you know, uh, or, or some teacher at university. And, and uh, I, I excelled in, in English in high school, and uh, I went to university, and I became an English major, and all of a sudden this podcast is turning into a, a Garrison Keillor program. I don't want to go there, but... Uh, well, then, then you finish university, and you have a box full of notebooks and you've published a couple poems and some people you know have published more poems and you go do an MFA it's a Master of Fine Arts degree uh, some of us do that and uh, some of people you know get jobs as, as uh, professors of creative writing or otherwise uh, you know some of us end up uh, teaching composition or something and uh, but if you do this long enough if you write poems long enough after 30 40 years you start to wonder well well what's the point of it all um, I began by explaining that I I live in Gaziantep Turkey I'm not Turkish uh, my wife and, and daughter are Turkish uh, I, I'm, I'm an American, and uh, I came to this country five years ago. Uh, I lived long stretches back in the States. I came back here. It's a very long story, but um, the point is I'm completely a fish out of water. Um, you know, I'm this uh, alien person uh, in someone else's country. Uh, sort of lost in the world uh, and you know I blame poetry for this you know me looking for some kind of vision uh, which which is sort of what poetry is for me um, 
looking for new vision, new language, uh, maybe new is not even a good word uh, or the right word for me, uh, magical vision, magical experience. Uh, you know, maybe this, it's a sort of a perpetuation of that adolescent mode where the, the, the feet ooze into the ground and the soul leaps into the sky. Um, I do think there's some growth and maturity to the experience of the poet. But I have to tell you, as the tramway goes by, I look at the train and I'm like a child all over again. I like to ride the tramway in Gaziantep because it makes me feel like I did when I was 13 years old riding the New York City subway. I love to ride, ride the subway in New York and uh, somewhere uh, around 9-11, I stopped uh, enjoying riding the New York City subway because... Uh, of uh, paranoia, you know, mass paranoia, fear of terrorism and all this. Uh, thank God we don't have that uh, happening here uh, in, in Gaziantep. No one's, uh, no one's bombing the tramway. Allah Kurusun, we say, uh, God, God forbid. So yeah, the new vision or magical vision and a magical language a new language or different language different is a good word strange uh, Stephen Dunn American poet from New Jersey would say strange he likes the word strange I think he uses the word the phrase strange language he's got an essay called Bring Home the Strange which might be in poor taste but uh, strange language the feeling of being alive when one is alone in the little boat of consciousness on the uh, lake or sea or ocean of one's subconscious is a strange feeling. Social interaction, um, and I would say more specifically uh, interaction with the marketplace, going to work every day, uh, being a consumer, going to the marketplace, looking at prices and comparative shopping and looking at what other people have and keeping up with the Joneses, that sort of uh, distracts one from this poetic vision, um, looking at different kinds of values, sensory values, uh, and where the sensory the senses, where the senses meet the spirit, where the senses meet the spirit. Um, because I'm not strictly a materialist, you know. Uh, I, I, there's more to this world than uh, just uh, enjoying colors or tactile sensation or smells or food. Those are all wonderful, but they connect us to uh, a sublimity, um, a divinity, something, uh, something great that that you know, like I like I said before, uh, that connection between you know the, the earth and uh, the infinite. You know, the the feet ooze into the earth and the soul leaps into the sky. Um, Writing a good poem uh, makes me feel that way. Reading a good poem makes me feel that way. Uh, and I don't want to just describe it in some kind of romantic, ecstatic way. And I love the romantic, ecstatic mode of feeling. Uh, but there are uh, subtler, more subtle... Um, shades and gradations of that sensation, you know. Um, I wanted to mention uh, two books I have here. I'm the fish out of water here in Turkey, as I mentioned. Uh, and I have a very limited English language library that I've brought to this country. 
Uh, I, I lived in Louisville, Kentucky and, and, and New York and uh, Atlanta, Georgia and I had, you know, went to bookstores and I, I, I bought, you know, uh, all these books and, and I had a big library at one time. I have a much smaller library now of English books. Uh, so I just read the same books over and over again. Uh, and I found actually that this is uh, good because I'm not sort of uh, scattered all over the place and I'm, and I'm not one of, you know, I'm not uh, keeping up with the Joneses in terms of literature. Hey, did you read this book? Hey, did you read that book? You know, uh, uh, and, and thank God for those people because they buy books and they, and they keep writers, working writers, working. Um, but I don't have a lot of money to buy books anyway. Uh, my point is, I, the two books I have is uh, uh, Delicious Laughter, Rambunctious Teaching Stories from the Mathnawi, uh, versions by Coleman Barks. It's Rumi, a book of, uh, of poems by Rumi, uh, Mevlana Jalaluddin Rumi, translated by Coleman Barks. And also uh, Dufu, A Life in Poetry, translated by David Young. And uh, so, you know, I read these books and I connect with these uh, ancient lives. Uh, Rumi lived in the 12th century uh, here in Anatolia, in Konya, northwest of uh, here. Um, sometimes I wonder if Gaziantep isn't more like uh, Konya in the 12th century. Uh, that's a little knock on, on Gaziantep. Gaziantep is uh, the tramwise busy this morning at 8.30, if you can hear it. Gaziantep's uh, famously uh, provincial within Turkey. Uh, it's known for its cuisine. Uh, so uh, it's easy for me to sort of... Uh, Think about uh, Rumi, who's the son of a Persian uh, hoja, a Persian uh, religious scholar and jurist, and he himself was a religious scholar and jurist, a learned, literate man in a in a uh, illiterate uh, world of of Turks, and uh, people aren't so illiterate in Gaziantep, but they are uh, they're not. Uh, uh, you know, uh, aesthetes, uh, urban aesthetes, uh, like you might find in uh, Istanbul or New York or Boston or something. My other book is Dufu, A Life in Poetry, and, and what I love about Dufu is is uh, his his biography. The, I mean, the 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 David Young book is is uh, divided in sections. It moves chron uh, chronologically through. Dufu's life. The train is, is a beautiful pause with my coffee. Dufu uh, studied poetry and he took an exam in Tang Dynasty, China, I think in the 7th century. Uh, I hope I have that right. You know, this is uh, a very long time ago. This is hundreds and hundreds of years before even Rumi, who's a thousand years ago almost, you know, 900 years ago. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, he's over a thousand years, you know, a millennia and a half ago, Dufu's living in. Um, you know, you, you, the civil service exam in Tang Dynasty China required you to have a knowledge of the of the poetic classics of that civilization uh, and then write some sort of essay or something I suppose or verses. Um, uh, Dufu failed his exam. Uh, some scholars believe it's for political reasons. Uh, basically they, they didn't want to have to choose anybody over anyone else and insult anyone so they just failed everybody. Uh, that's one theory. Without getting caught up in the minutiae, the point is, uh, Dufu, uh, his ambition was to become a civil servant, a bureaucrat, and live this stable uh, life, um, economically secure life with his family and his house servants and all these things. 
he did his whole life have responsibility of uh, a wife and family and and uh, and servants. Uh, 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 these are, I think, uh, some sort of serfs that were bound to him somehow. I mean, he was part of, uh, you know, uh, he was in a, a certain elevated social class, but not elevated enough to escape miserable poverty, which is the point here. He uh, he did not become a state bureaucrat. Uh, and then the An Lushan Rebellion happened, which I think killed 20 million people or something, something... Uh, unfathomably, unfathomably uh, terrible happened in China. This social disrupt, disruption, civil war. Uh, he so Du Fu spent Du Fu spent his whole life uh, running from uh, problems, uh, wars, and bandits, and famine, and plague, and he's just moving here and moving there, and he settles at this farmstead for a while and he's over here for a while and and uh he but he continues to write poetry and uh he he writes uh, he writes about his misery he writes about his own misery so uh i woke up this morning i made a cup of coffee and uh, I picked up these books, and I said, "I'll turn this, uh, I'll turn this audio on, and, and just start free, freewheeling." So uh, I hope I'm not too uh, boring and rambling here. Uh, the coffee's beginning to work a little bit. Uh, it, it it might make me ramble more than if I'm just uh, half asleep, like I was when I turned this on. Uh, I, I did not pick out specific uh, Rumi and Dufu poems, and I might even, I may not even get around to reading any of them here. I don't know. We'll see. Uh, but, but what's interesting is that Rumi and Dufu uh, create a kind of a bracket. There goes the tramway. There goes another tramway. Everybody's going to work. Everybody is distracting themselves from their uh, from their vision, their lyrical vision, their personal vision, their personal magical vision, and their personal magical language, their personal poetic language, and they're going to go talk to their boss, and their clients, and their coworkers, and their employees, and uh, put on a mask and say other people's words, maybe. I think there is poetry in everyday life, but uh, not enough. So as I was saying, Rumi and Dufu offer a kind of a bracket for me. Rumi definitely uh, has his feet on the ground and he is uh, leaping up into the air, into the seven heavens towards Allah. Uh, Inshallah. His poetry is very ecstatic uh, in moments, uh, even as it's rooted in, in ordinary people and stories and, and images. Dufu's poems are so uh, quotidian, everyday, and at times uh, miserably quotidian. But that is his genius and his beauty. He is uh, focused on ordinary life. And uh, maybe in uh, true Taoist, uh, Buddhist, Confucian fashion, he is uh, not so interested in conceiving of and defining uh, the divine or God or what have you, Allah, subhanahu wa ta'ala, but uh, you know, he he he's he's his feet are, are 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 planted on earth and his head's down at the earth, and uh, and of course, uh, Rumi, in true Mevlevi fashion, is whirling in all directions. So I feel like uh, I should uh, I should find some some I should open these poems and read them for you, yeah. 
Sometimes what I like to do when I just read is find where I left bookmarks. Uh, and the reason is because when I find bookmarks, I, I find myself what I was reading uh, another day. Uh, here's a short poem, which actually is pretty ecstatic, and I, and I think I marked this. I can remember when I marked this. I saw a poem, uh, uh, excuse me, I watched a film, a Turkish film. Uh, I think it's called Fireflies or... Uh, do you remember the fireflies or did you see the fireflies? And anyway, it's a, an English translation of the Turkish title. This is a, a, a somewhat contemporary uh, Turkish film, a beautiful film about a, a, a mathematically genius girl uh, growing up in, uh, in uh, mid 20th century Turkey. And uh, she's beautiful uh, and, and, and she could just add numbers in her head and do incredible equations just in her head. Um, she seems to be sort of on the autistic spectrum, maybe, maybe a little bit like Rain Man. Uh, she's unable to marry, which is an important uh, social convention here in Turkey. Uh, everyone is expected to be married in Turkey, and so. Um, you know, uh, uh, she can't marry because uh, she's too crazy. Uh, they bring suitors to marry her and she runs them off. You know, she doesn't want to be married to the... So, and, and so her prospects uh, fall. You know, at first they're going to marry her off to some corporate uh, heir. And, and, uh, but he's, a, you know, sort of a nose-picking idiot or whatever. Uh, Finally, uh, she refuses the uh, butcher's son or whatever. So uh, she never marries. Uh, she's obsessed with these fireflies in the backyard in this beautiful garden. Her father's rich at the beginning of the of the film, and uh, and the fortunes of the family decline. I won't tell too much about that. You should see the film. Look it up. Uh, we watched it on Netflix here in Turkey. But uh, by the end of the film, of course, the city's built up all around the house and there's no more fireflies. Uh, the fireflies symbolize something, uh, I guess, a sense of wonder. So Dufu has a poem about fireflies. Uh, this is, I think, towards uh, the end of his life, so his life is getting more miserable, but he found a, maybe a sublime moment. I can't remember anything about this poem except that I bookmarked it because there's fireflies in it. So I'm going to read it to you, uh, and it's going to be uh, fresh and new to me, maybe. Um, this is called Watching Fireflies. This is the uh, Tang Dynasty era poet, 7th century poet, Du Fu, Chinese, uh, translated by David Young. Watching Fireflies, Du Fu. Fireflies from the enchanted mountains. Come through the screen and settle on my shirt. Here in my study, my chin and books grow cold. Outside, above the eaves, they are hard to tell from the stars. They sail above the well, each one reflecting a mate. In the garden, they pass chrysanthemums, Flares of color against the dark, white-haired and sad. I tried to read their code. Will I be here next year to watch them? So, you know, here's a Dufu poem about fireflies. He's uh, firmly rooted in the material world, uh, the mountains, uh, his age. Uh, but of course, his his leap up into the sky uh, is a leap towards mortality, a great big question mark. Uh, you know, he doesn't know uh, where he's going when he dies. Maybe, at least how that's how I read it. And uh, but he, he's hopeful. The fire the fireflies are sort of a hint at at. Uh, you know, news of the universe, if I could borrow the phrase from Robert Bly. Uh, the natural world gives us news of the universe. Uh, 
Um, I'm not a scholar of the Holy Quran, but uh, you know, uh, I'm told uh, Allah will give us signs in nature. You know, uh, nature. Uh, I've even uh, heard somewhere uh, it's a it's a Sufic wisdom. Uh, I can't tell you who. Maybe it was Ibn Al Arabi or somebody like that. I'm not sure. Something I, I heard on an Idris Shah podcast, uh, uh, but the nature is a second Quran. Nature is the other Quran. It is something by which uh, we can we can measure our lives, guide our lives, guide our our, our spirit and our art, our religion, and of course that's uh, that's not so far from uh, what. Uh, Maybe uh, the Western aesthetic, uh, if, if thinking about Plato and mimesis and, and that sort of thing, uh, we can measure ourselves by nature. And nature is, uh, is uh, divine, you know, or reflects the divine. Uh, there's even hints of that in, in, in that Dufu translation. Now, does that hold up if we go and read... Uh, 7th century, uh, the 7th century original Chinese of Dufu? I don't know. Is, is David Young uh, projecting his own Western biases onto Dufu? That's a very good question for scholarship. And if you're listening to this and you have the uh, academic tools to explore that question, uh, by all means do so. I'm going to uh, trust that David young uh, captured uh, Dufu. I, I feel when I read David Young, I, I know this person from another world. I mean, I, I feel a strangeness of another world, uh, a 7th century China. But uh, who knows? Is anything that we read in books real? Uh, I, I actually gave a lecture of my own uh, to an alumni group at Spalding University uh, here from, from I, was, I was here in Gaziantep doing this on Zoom to an audience in America of people all around America meeting on Zoom and uh, and I, I talked about the problems of translation and, and some of the criticism of Coleman Barks who although credited as a translator doesn't actually translate Rumi uh, Rumi wrote in, uh, in classical Farsi classical uh, Iranian Persian, classical Persian. Uh, that was the language of the uh, of scholarship in the in the Seljuk Turkic Empire. So the, the, the army spoke Turkish, but the uh, the learned men uh, spoke Arabic, read and wrote Arabic and, and Persian. And Persian was very popular for secular literatures. Uh, Rumi's uh, his career uh, his career work his, his writing things like the Mathnawi uh, are called uh, the, the Quran in Persian uh, they are uh, deeply religious poems uh, so yeah Coleman Barks uh, Coleman Barks uh, doesn't actually translate Rumi's Persian. He doesn't read Persian. He translates much more literal, but maybe uh, boring to read, uh, not so interesting to read uh, translations of English. So he takes English translations and he, he turns them into uh, free verse American English poems. Um, and of course, uh, uh, Coleman Barks's poems are very readable and interesting, and uh, they've been bestsellers and everything. Um, I'm going to read a very short poem here, just because it's short, and uh, I might do uh, uh, audio at another time. Uh, I guess you could call this a podcast uh, later, of, of, of longer poems maybe, but this is the one I picked out here, and just, just as a way to uh, demonstrate this kind of book bookend phenomena between uh, Dufu and uh, 
and Rumi. And, and, and maybe when I look at this poem, this, is, uh, this brings uh, Rumi and Dufu closer together. Uh, as I mentioned, Dufu's kind of miserable. <laughs> you know, his life is hard. Um, Rumi, you know, admittedly lived a very privileged existence. He was an educated man. He had uh, a very respected social position as a uh, theologian and jurist. He was the head of a, of a, of a Sufi order that... Uh, uh, eventually uh, got uh, uh, state uh, patronage for a very long time. I don't think in his lifetime, but uh, I mean, the, the Mathnawi, uh, excuse me, the Mevlevi order still exists in, in Konya, Turkey to this day. Um, in, in the Ottoman Empire times, uh, they were uh, well endowed by the, the Sultan. So, uh, you know, Rumi was the son of a famous man, uh, and he himself was famous in his own lifetime, in his own community. And, uh, you know, in his death, he's only become more famous. I mean, he's, he's probably the most popular poet in the Islamic world. Uh, so, uh, you know, he's rivaled only by people by, like Haifez and, and, and some others. But uh, the, his people refer to him as Mevlana. You know, uh, if you if you said his full name, you would call him Mevlana Jalaladin Rumi. His name is Jalaladin. Um, Mevlana means master. Uh, in the Islamic world, in the traditional Islamic world, when you say Mevlana, uh, even though that's a title for for many different masters, Mevlana means Rumi. They they assume you mean Rumi. He's the the first Mevlana, the only Mevlana, uh, the one and only. Uh, you know, like in, in, in American popular music, if you say the godfather of soul, uh, look, there's a lot of godfathers, there's a lot of uh, soul singers, but the godfather of soul is James Brown, and, and Mevlana is Rumi. Uh, Rumi means the Roman, and, uh, you know, in, in Afghanistan, he's called Mevlana Balki, uh, because he was born in Balk, Afghanistan. In, uh, in a Persian language world, when, when Afghanistan was uh, Persian majority speaking, and uh, the Mongol invasions uh, forced his family to move west, and that's how uh, uh, he settled in Anatolia, in this region of the world, actually. Um, Gaziantep is in southern Anatolia, where I live. So, uh, yeah, and, and so at that time, Anatolia had for a very long time been part of the Roman Empire for like a millennium. And there were still uh, Greek-speaking people here who referred to themselves as Romayoi, Roman citizens. Uh, this was Byzantium, the Byzantine Empire, the East Roman Empire. Uh, and the Turks had come in the, in, in the century before uh, Rumi. Uh, and they formed a pastoral, uh, that's like a, a sheep herding, uh, a sheep herding majority. I mean, they just outnumbered the Romans. The Romans were, the Byzantine Romans were uh, depopulated by centuries of war with Persia. Uh, the Islamic tide had come. The Arabs uh, um, overran Persia. Uh, Persia was Islamized, uh, Anatolia was Islamized, um, but a Anatolia was Islamized by the Turks. Um, the Turks came in the 11th century, and uh, maybe a century after comes Rumi, and he's in a world that is multicultural. There are uh, Greek, uh, Greek Roman citizen identifying Christians. Uh, some of them, I'm sure, are converting to Islam. Uh, there are recently Islamized Turks. Uh, the Turks have uh, a different relationship culturally to Islam uh, than the Persians and the Arabs. You know, the Prophet uh, Muhammad, peace be upon him, uh, appeared among the Arabs. Um, the Arabs uh, brought Islam to the Persian world, which had been Zoroastrian. 
the Persians, uh, subsequent to the Abbasid uh, Caliphate in, in the 800s, 900s, 1000, uh, this is the 9th, 10th, 11th centuries, there's a revival of the Persian language and culture. Persian culture has a profound influence on uh, the Arab world, just as it had had a, uh, a profound influence on uh, the Greek and Roman worlds for centuries. Uh, you know, Byzantium is as much a reflection of the Persian uh, world, Persian culture, Persian uh, aesthetic, um, as, as it does the Roman, the Western, uh, you know, it's, it's domes, it's uh, columns, it's mosaics, it's uh, iconoclasm, Byzantium, you know, don't let me go down my Byzantine rabbit hole, I love, uh, uh, I'm an, an amateur Byzantinist, uh, uh, but my love of, of Byzantine things sort of led me to Turkey, and when you get here to Turkey looking for Byzantium, you find, uh, you find little shattered remnants of Byzantium, but you also find the shattered remnants of the Ottomans. And below the Ottomans, you find the shattered remnants of the Seljuk Turks. And in that layer, in that cultural layer in Turkey, in modern Republic in Turkey, you find uh, Mevlana, Rumi. Here in, in Rum, Rome, that's what the Turks called this land. The Seljuks of Rome. When you look on a map uh, in the Crusader times, you'll see the Seljuks of Rome and you'll go, what are they drinking? Uh, are they drinking Bacardi? It's not rum, it's Rome, Rome. The Turks came to Rome in the same way that the Germans uh, the, long, the, the Longbeards, the Lungibardi, the Lombards, as they're called, the Germanic barbarians who came to Italy, uh, they saw themselves as Romans. Uh, and, and the Turks came here, the early Turks that came here saw themselves as Romans too. Yes, we're Turks. Yes, we're, we're Muslim, but we live in Rome, in Rome. And, and if you doubt that, uh, I, I, you, have to, you look no further than the hammam, uh, the, the, the Turkish bath. There are so many uh, cultural remnants of Greco-Roman civilization that are, that are just uh, synonymous with Turkish culture. So that was a long, long introduction. Uh, but I'm, I'm sitting here in Turkey looking out the window and, and, and my brain's spinning. That's why uh, Mevlana Jalaluddin is called Rumi. He's Rumi because he lives in Rome and he lives in this multicultural world and you, and you see him all the time uh, trying to bridge the gap between Islam and Christianity, the, the, the West and the East, the Greeks, uh, and the Romans and uh, the Islamic world, the Turks, the Persians, and the Arabs, because he has a foot in all of those, those, uh, those worlds, okay? Um, when Rumi died, uh, there were many, uh, of course, there were Muslims at his wedding, many Muslims, but there were many uh, uh, Christians and Jews uh, Greeks, Armenians, um, you know, Turks, uh, uh, Persians, and, and, and Arabs uh, at his funeral. Does that relate to this poem? I have no idea. <laughs> this poem, uh, translated by Coleman Barks of Rumi's, is called Spiritual Seniority. A camel and an ox and a ram were ambling along a road when they saw a fresh tuft of barley grass that they all wanted. They stopped and the ram said, if we divide this, none of us will be satisfied. Let us do as Muhammad advised and give it to the eldest 
honoring his superior experience. No one honors their elders these days without some ulterior motive. The young invite them to taste the food first, only when they suspect it's too hot. They invite them to cross the bridge ahead of them, only when they see dangerous cracks in the arches. And no one bows to a teacher in these times without some scam in mind. So let us each declare his age and settle this matter. As for me, I don't know my exact years, but I was once pastured with that ram that Abraham sacrificed instead of Isaac. The ox says, well, I could beat that. I was yoked in the team that Adam plowed when he left Eden. The camel listened to their amazing lies, reached his long neck down, plucked the luscious tuft, and as he held it over their heads and ate it, he said, I don't know much about this chronology, sweethearts, but I know I'm taller than you two, and that has obvious spiritual significance. My first thought is that I'm six foot five inches tall. Uh, I don't know what that is in meters, but uh, uh, I'm, I'm as tall as Kobe Bryant was. Uh, may he rest in peace. Uh, does that give me spiritual power? I don't know, but it's awfully hard for me to find pants and shoes that fit. Um, I started this podcast talking about why do I write poetry? Uh, you will notice I, I did not spend a lot of time explicating, explaining, decoding uh, those poems by uh, Dufu and Rumi. So much of the academic activity surrounding poetry is, uh, is about getting at the meaning of poems. The, Walt Whitman has that phrase, have you spent much time getting at the meaning of poems? Uh, I'm paraphrasing Whitman, but uh, he's like, go with me this day and, and uh, I'll show you those things. I'll show you how to do those things and, and so much more. Um, you know, I, I, I think you, you read a poem you chew on it a little bit and, and, and you move on, you know? Uh, and then you come back to the poems and then you come back to the same poems and, and their meanings deepen. Um, and for me, reading poetry is very important for my own writing poetry because what you, you wanna deepen your experience. You wanna remember through reading and through writing and through speech that is not uh, ordinary in the sense of the post-industrial ordinary, like, you know, to just see the price of a gallon of milk, you know, uh, you want that magic and wonder. You want a language that's rooted in the earth that's reaching towards the seven heavens. Um, you want to speak and write and read in a manner that deepens uh, the experience of being alive, um, the magical, spiritual, shamanic, um, su su sublime power of language. Um, I really do believe that in ancient peoples, words could knock them over. There were people that had so much power with their words that they, they could heal people. Uh, I'm, yes, I'm thinking of Jesus in the, in the Christian scriptures uh, um, and in the Islamic scripture, uh, in, in uh, Surah Al-Miryam, uh, Al you could read the life of Jesus according to the Quran if you're interested in Islam at all. Um, But also, I'm thinking of um, yes, I'm thinking of the prophets, the Abraham, the Abrahamic religious prophets, the Jewish prophets, the Christian uh, tradition, the, the the prophets of Islam. Uh, but I'm also thinking of uh, you know uh, old world shamans, you know, speaking magic words uh, over people and healing them. I'm thinking of uh, people that have found spiritual healing. Uh, uh, 
you know, who have, uh, you know, thrown off 20-year uh, addictions uh, to heroin uh, from, from talking to somebody who had some spiritual power and, and developing a kind of a spiritual power through language. Uh, I'm not endorsing any, uh, any recovery programs uh, in, in saying that. Uh, I'm, I'm just thinking of examples of powerful, sublime, spiritual, semantic, magical language. I mean, these are all different words. I don't want to equate those terms, but I think there's a set of descriptors uh, in different cultural contexts in different times that speak to language that can do more than uh, language that can do more than just give orders, barter, uh, and uh, and distract and merely entertain. And I don't and I don't want to uh, uh, denigrate the craft of people in uh, popular arts today. Uh, television. There is some amazing television and film writing and stage writing. Um, and and these, in fact, uh, are full of poetry. Uh, but uh, the the poem as a discrete thing um, is definitely culturally marginalized, and uh, people don't just you know spit poetry. Um, yeah, I, I hear you out there, hip hop fan. What about uh, hip hop? Uh, uh, rhymes and, and, and such and and, uh, and I think that's a great example of a poetic language that can do more than uh, uh, words that knock people over um, you know I, I think like everything else uh, uh, more academic poetry included um, you know there's varying quality and there's questions of taste and whatnot and and uh, I like to read uh, dusty old tomes, you know, books with people that have been dead for a long time, uh, and I like to hear their magic words, feel their magic words, because I can't read Dufu's magic words or Rumi's magic words. I can read Walt Whitman's magic words. I can read uh, Emily Dickinson's magic words. I can read Eldridge Cleaver's magic words and be moved, shook changed, healed, inspired. Uh, I could have uh, the earth come and grab my ankles and pull me down into the grave, into the lava of the earth, and then shoot me up into, uh, up into the sky and past the stratosphere and past Saturn, and in fact, past this universe and into other universes. And I can get that news of the universe. And I'm going to stop there on that subject and talk just generally about uh, uh, what my goals are uh, for this uh, podcast and say goodbye. I'm going to uh, listen to this podcast and see if I could at all uh, upload it, if it's worth doing that. This might have been a complete waste of my time. I don't know. But uh, being somebody who uh, listens to... Uh, different podcasts and, and uh, I, I do a lot of that stuff on YouTube there's a guy who called Schwerpunkt I think he's uh, some European guy who does uh, military history that I listen to and his uh, his podcasts are really low tech and sometimes he's hard to hear and uh, but I listen to him anyway because I, I just love what he has to say and he rambles and and, uh, and he has an audience for this so uh, that's why I'm doing this. I have uh, no budget uh, to do this. If you're uh, at all interested in supporting uh, my conspiracy to commit poetry, please subscribe uh, to uh, this podcast and newsletter, uh, which I'm going to put out as much as possible. And if uh, people start contributing financially to it, no one has contributed at all yet, but I just started it yesterday. If people start contributing to it financially, uh, then then I can uh, 
I could do this like a job a little bit. And remember, I'm in Turkey, so uh, people are paying in dollars, and uh, I get the exchange rate here. So, uh, uh, you know, this is uh, this is yes, it is a money scheme, uh, but it's uh, it's a it's a creative scheme, and the, and the money is just a motivator for me to do it. Actually, um, so uh, if if you listen to this podcast, you never know. I'll be talking about uh, Turkey and. And Rumi again, I'm sure, and at some point probably Walt Whitman and my own work, uh, and who knows what other obsessions and, and subjects I'll get into. But uh, I, I will be uh, worried less about uh, finding a job, and uh, and I, I have little gigs, but I don't have a job yet in this country. I'm, I'm trying to get one. I've actually been offered one. Um, but I'm, I'm, I'm sort of in a, a bureaucratic limbo right now. So uh, uh, you'll, you'll probably hear me rant and rave. That was a motorcycle. We all know a motorcycle guy. He's in all countries. Uh, you'll probably hear me rant and rave about uh, uh, my, my biographical uh, woes, like Dufu maybe. Um, so yeah. This is my uh, this is my podcast. I'm going to try to make them uh, 30, 45, or 60 minutes in that range. Uh, that's a good range. Uh, I, I like to hear the human lectures. I like to hear the human voice uh, and and fall asleep on it. You know, uh, if you don't like uh, uh, mansplaining, uh, uh, you 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 might not this might not be your cup of tea. Uh, not that I'm, I'm not trying to mansplain. I'm just, I'm a man and I'm explaining things and I'm going on and on. Uh, and some people really like that, actually. I think a lot of men like that and a lot of people don't. My daughter is awake now. She's looking to me like, Daddy, who are you talking to? And, uh, yes, Anna Noor. Uh, and then, uh, Okul. Okulda. Tamama. So my daughter is awake. Where's mommy? Mommy's at school. Daddy's got to make uh, breakfast, right? Are you hungry? No. You want some water? So my daughter has decided that the uh, podcast is over. Thank you so much for listening. And uh, I hope you will come back again soon. Bye-bye.